Hi, everyone. Great seeing you all. Um, I, I see some new faces today. And uh, if you're new here and we haven't met, my name is Aiden. I'm the pastor of Covenant Life Church. Uh, glad you're here and glad everybody else is here, too. Hope you're doing well. Uh, today, uh, as April mentioned earlier, uh, marks the, um, the Palm Sunday, which is the first day of the Passion Week. And the word passion, by the way, signifies uh, the sufferings of Christ. And uh, as many of you know, we'll be having our Good Friday service this Friday and uh, Easter service on Sunday. And I want to encourage that everyone um, try to spend you know, every day of this week uh, really commemorating um, and meditating on the sufferings and death and resurrection of Christ uh, for our salvation. And I already asked the uh, life group leaders to uh, share with everyone uh, this article that outlines the events in the Bible of this week leading up to the cross. Uh, I hope that will help you uh, meditate on Christ's work of love for you. And just first quick mention of the reason you know, why we set aside you know, this week apart in this way. Um, what it is not is that we're not trying to gain any brownie points you know, from God. Um, nor are we trying to just feel good about our spirituality for, from you know, this experience. Uh, what we are trying to do, based on what we've been learning from the book of Galatians, where we have been learning that uh, our salvation is by God's grace alone, and our works do not add anything to our status before God. The reason why we uh, set apart a week like this is to uh, follow the pattern in the Bible where it's written in the Old Testament. Uh, God um, you know, set apart some days and weeks where the Israelites could remember you know, God's special blessings and um, you know, the meaning of salvation for his people. So that as we do that as well, uh, we get to... Um, be helped to remember the great work of salvation that Jesus Christ accomplished for us uh, through his death and resurrection. And I hope that it renew, renews our hearts as we participate uh, this week together. So that's my hope and prayer for us. Uh, may all of us uh, be blessed this week as we follow the footsteps of Christ together. And with that, we'll continue on with the book of Galatians uh, today we are on chapter 3, verses 15 through 25. Um, I'll be reading it for us, and uh, I'll pray, and then we'll uh, delve in together through this passage. Galatians 3, verses 15 through 25. It says, to give a human example, brothers, even with the man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. 
so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would, be, would indeed be uh, by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. Let's stop there. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this time. Thank you that uh, you are sovereign over this service, uh, this time of the word. Uh, your Holy Spirit is with us right now, guiding our hearts. So I pray that uh, the Holy Spirit of God will come into our hearts right now and open them up so that uh, these words that are about to be spoken from your word will not remain as just words, but it will penetrate our hearts. Oh, Lord, help us, uh, especially as we commemorate uh, the work of Christ this week. Lord, we need you. God, we uh, want to come back. We want to be renewed by the gospel, that our hearts may come alive and get to experience uh, your love for us once more. Help us, Lord. God, we need you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, three points as usual. Uh, those are the tardiness of the law, a second, the misapplication of the law, and the third, the usefulness of the law. And the title for this message is Redeeming the Law. And uh, I don't know if you are fond of the law in general, but I do have to give you a heads up that uh, this passage that we're, gonna, we're about to delve into is going to be a little challenging. It's uh, rather very theological, and it requires uh, some context and information that I'll try to provide as much as possible. So it'll be a little challenging just to give you a heads up, but I believe in you. I'm always thankful for our church of how we're growing together in God's um, you know, word and uh, its depth together, so I know we can do this. So um, if you do fall asleep, God bless you, because I know I'm providing rest for you. Uh, but for the sake of our spiritual growth, 
let's uh, try to uh, focus our minds on this text and um, may God bless our hearts together as we uh, fix our eyes on uh, his word. Please follow with me. First, the tardiness of the law. Verse 15, it says this. To give a human example, brothers or sisters, uh, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Uh, here, the, the consistent argument Paul has been making in this letter thus far, if you've been following the series, is that a person is justified, which is a term that means being declared righteous before God. Uh, you know, it's, it's not by the works of the law, by our doing, but by our faith in Christ alone. That's been the argument. And now, and we also saw that a good example of justification by faith alone was Abraham from the Old Testament. And now, in this passage, uh, Paul will illustrate that by appealing to a common sense. So that's where we uh, left off, and now we enter into this verse that we just read. Uh, again, just think of you know, common sense here. Uh, that's what Paul is trying to say here. Uh, in this verse, Paul is simply saying that whenever people sign a contract you know, for buying a house or whatever, uh, or covenant is another word for that, right? Uh, whenever people do that, uh, the terms of the covenant must be preserved. That's the nature of the covenant or uh, contract. But let's say there's another contract or covenant coming after this original covenant. Uh, this later one should not uh, you know, modify or even reject or annul uh, the original covenant or contract. So Paul is saying that you know, there is this original covenant that we're about to you know, talk about in this passage, and the terms of that covenant must not be altered by whatever comes afterwards. And now uh, in verse 16, Paul will identify what this original covenant is. So follow with me, verse 16, it says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say two offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, uh, who is Christ. Uh, so in this covenant, uh, Paul identifies as the Abrahamic covenant that God made with uh, the patriarch uh, Abraham. You know, God promised uh, certain blessings you know, uh, land and especially the, the multitude of people that will belong to his nation, descendants from all over the world. That was a promise. Uh, and here Paul identifies the, the offspring uh, as ultimately Christ. It's through the, the ultimate offspring of Abraham, biologically, Christ will be the focal point of this blessing that we'll look at in the later portion of Galatians. But for now, uh, you know, Paul's argument here is that you know, Abraham received uh, these uh, blessings and promises, uh, again, by faith alone, not by working. That was the argument from Genesis 15. And, and Paul also said in the same way, you know, Abraham is like a pattern for the people to come afterwards, that 
uh, people will be also justified receiving the spiritual blessings um, through the same pattern of believing as opposed to you know, working. Uh, so again, that's the original covenant, right? And now, just thinking back to the, the, the concept that we looked at in verse 15, there comes another covenant later on. And that's what we'll look at in verse 17. It says, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. So you get that, right? So original covenant with Abraham, now comes this covenant with Moses, Mosaic covenant, um, and that is the covenant that the Israelites received at Mount Sinai. And uh, this covenant is very particular in that uh, people had to obey many rules to uh, receive these physical blessings from God. And, and we'll see later that you know, this covenant also is by God's grace. It's, it's not you know, in contrast to other covenants in the Bible, uh, um, but, but it is unique. Uh, but Paul, again, is saying that the, the terms of this new covenant does not uh, you know, affect or modify or reject the original covenant, the, the salvation by grace alone. So the logic holds that the, the terms of Abrahamic covenant, the terms that said only by faith alone people are justified you know, before God. They are declared righteous. Uh, it happens only by faith. You cannot earn it. Just like how uh, in human contracts, the, the later contracts do not alter the previous one. So this the doctrine of justification by faith stands because it came earlier than um, the Mosaic Covenant. So that's what Paul is trying to say here. Now to illustrate that, um, if you go to the next slide, I recently read this uh, news article on uh, the LA Times about this drink beverage called Arizona iced tea. And uh, the, the article is reporting that, you know, that signature, uh, you know, flagship drink, it's apparently a 23-ounce can of iced tea. The price has been kept at 99 cents per can ever since 1996. You know, so for almost 30 years, they never changed the price. And the owner in the interview uh, of the company said that he intends to keep it that way despite as you know, the rising inflation, rising you know, costs and prices of other ingredients for, for this drink. And the basic reasoning behind uh, this notion for the owner is that you know, he's, he's committed to uh, his original promise to his customers. He doesn't want to burden his customers you know, financially, and, and he doesn't want to hinder them from having the access to the drink. Very noble, I will say. And to me, that illustrates well of what God is doing in this passage. That God will not change or raise the price tag, so to speak, for people's justification. Of course, there's a difference between Arizona 
drink and then God's deal here because, you know, Arizona drink is still 99 cents. But for justification, people don't have to pay a dime to be justified. And to be sure, that doesn't mean that um, the, the salvation God achieved through Jesus Christ was any cheaper. I mean, it was costly sacrifice, right? Jesus Christ, the, the God himself, you know, died on the cross. It was an infinite cost. And yet, out of love for his people and, and being committed to his original promise to Abraham, God will not change the zero-dollar policy to justification. And that is God's commitment to us. Um, and as we think about that, I think the way we can apply this uh, is that you know, God's commitment to his salvation by faith alone uh, will continue to last and be preserved you know, after, again, the Abrahamic covenant and any other covenants afterwards, and even after our failures. Even after whatever we do, God will not change his mind. He'll be committed to justification by faith. Uh, I think that like, like last week, uh, as we said, the biggest test of whether we truly believe uh, the doctrine of justification by faith alone uh, comes uh, when we fail. When we fail, we can truly see whether we really believe this doctrine. You know, for example, when you forget to do your daily devotional, you know, when, when you fall back to your habitual sins and when you do unthinkable things that bother your conscience, do you still believe that God sees you as righteous in Christ? Or do you find yourself you know, trying to make up for your failures by your own efforts? But if you truly understand that God will forever be committed to the original covenant in terms of his agreement, you, know, you would stop striving to cover up your failures, but you would rather come before God as you are, as we, as we talked about last week, trusting that God's view of you has not, cha not, not changed. He still sees you as justified in Christ. And, and with that security in mind that you would freely repent of your sins, not hide, and, and grow in holiness by God's grace. So God's commitment to justification by faith alone will not change. And that's a great news for us. Second, the misapplication of the law. Verse 18, it says, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. The word for uh, in the beginning of the verse shows that Paul is now further explaining uh, why the later covenant of Moses uh, cannot revoke or modify the original covenant of Abraham. And we'll see in this section that it's because uh, the natures of these covenants are very different. So let's look at that together. First, the word inheritance refers to the physical blessings in the Old Testament. And the New Testament refers primarily the spiritual blessings such as justification 
so Paul says that if justification comes by the law, uh, you know, meaning not by faith but by our human efforts, then it no longer comes by a promise. So promise versus the law. And I think it's hard to understand at first. Again, it's a hard passage. So follow with me. The next sentence will help how we can understand this. So there we read uh, that uh, you know, God gave it to Abraham by a promise. And there, I have to mention that the, the version that I'm using, ESV, the English Standard Version, there's an excellent translation, uh, but uh, I find it unfortunate that it is translated in, in, this, in this way in, for this sentence because the word gave uh, in the original language Greek, it, it has the word grace, charis, in it. So it's better to be translated that God graciously gave it to Abraham by a promise, graciously. And what that means is that, you know, Paul seems to be saying that in the earlier covenant with Abraham, you know, God made the promises that he gave to Abraham uh, based on his grace. Uh, meaning, what that means is this, right? That God didn't owe Abraham these blessings. It was out of his sheer grace and mercy that God gave Abraham uh, these, these blessings and promises. It was his free choice. It was his, out of his own volition that he uh, made this covenant out of grace. Abraham didn't do anything to deserve this. And then in this arrangement, you know, all Abraham can do is to receive by faith. And now, Paul will con contrast that with uh, the law. So promise and the law here. So law is found in verse 19, second half and verse 20. It says this. Uh, it, the law, was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Hard passage again. What that means is this. According to Deuteronomy 33.2, uh, apparently there are thousands of angels uh, who are involved in uh, the giving of the law uh, at Mount Sinai. So that's why Paul mentions about angels here. But the word intermediary or mediator, uh, you can imagine that refers to Moses. He's the guy that was in between God and Israelites. But the next sentence is a little puzzling. Like, what does it mean that the intermediary implies more than one? Uh, the concept, if you look at the concept of intermediation, uh, what that means is there are more than one party, right? You're mediating between two parties normally. In this case, the one party is the lawgiver who is God, and the other party is uh, the people, the lawdoers. Uh, the Israelites. And in order for this system to work, in this two-party system to work, you know, people have to do their share of duties, and God is bound to, he's supposed to reward them for their efforts and completion of their duties. And that was their, you know, physical blessings of the land and, and so forth. But contrast that now with the, the promise. And th that's what the next sentence is for. 
you know, where it says, but God is one. But God is one. What does that mean? Uh, in, in contrast to the system of the law, in the system of promise, there's only one party, namely God. He's the one that does all the work for, for everybody because it's based on the grace. He's the one that approached Abraham without being prompted to do so, without having, having any obligation to do so. And he uh, came and approached him and you know, made a covenant with him and gave him lots of promises. Um, but more importantly, later on, you know, while we're still sinners, so after Abraham, now even our present time, while we're still sinners, God sent his son to become human and die in our place. And he did die and rose again. He did all of that without any, you know, prompt to do so. Grace. And the people, whether it's Abraham or us, uh, all we have to do, there's no share of duties here. All we got to do, God is saying that we just receive by God's grace or by, by, by faith. One party system here. All God's work, we only receive. Promise and law. Hope you see that. Another thing I want to mention here is that the system of law is also particular and very specific to the, the, the time period of salvation history uh, because it had to do with the, the, the physical uh, blessings of Israel. It, wasn't, it was not for you know, other periods of salvation history. It was for that particular time when Israel was entering the promised land, God conditioned uh, the, the physical possession of the land and other blessings physically on their obedience. It wasn't for their spiritual uh, blessings because they were not able to keep all the laws. There's no way they could somehow gain spiritual justification through their obedience because they were humans and just like us uh, so therefore the law was very specific for that time period but in contrast uh, the, the covenant of promise by abraham that came earlier than that uh, is the one that grants justification uh, it, it, it accomplishes it for us because it is god who did it all Jesus Christ accomplished it for us and we only receive it. And that's the only system, the only way we can gain justification. So again, the, the, the conclusion, the Mosaic Covenant cannot revoke or change the, the original covenant with Abraham because um, the Abrahamic covenant was supposed to be the eternal uh, all-time way to gain justification with God through faith whereas the Mosaic Covenant was temporary, only for the physical uh, blessings uh, at that time period. And that's why, going back to the Galatians passage and context, that's why the false teachers of the Galatian church are foolish to teach that people have to you know, put themselves under the system of the law to gain justification because it was not for... The, that, that purpose. It was not for spiritual blessings. It's for physical blessings. 
they were dead wrong, and people would lose their souls over this error. Let's tell you one story, uh, just to illustrate uh, this whole concept. Uh, this one time uh, when I allowed one uh, extended family member out of town who was visiting me, me at the time uh, to use my car. Um, I mean, you know, you got to do that, you know, you have to <laughs> let, let, let them use their car, use your car and, you know, be hospitable in that way, but um, it's a problem when there's an accident. <laughs> That's what happened. Um, so he got into a small-ish accident in a parking lot uh, near like Menards, near my place. And then um, the, what happened was that the, while he was going somewhere in the parking lot, uh, another car was backing up and uh, hit the front bumper, like smashed. It was like really bad. Um, so when, as soon as I heard that, I was like, okay, well, you got to do something about this. So I, I called my insurance company and, you know, took care of all the logistics. Um, but then when I came back to my garage, I saw my car at the time parked. And to my utter surprise, the front bumper looked fine. I was like, what happened? But then I took a little more steps towards the front bumper. Then I realized that the front bumper was put together by duct tapes that was same color as my car. Um, so what happened was, you know, the family member felt really bad. Uh, I mean, I felt bad that he felt bad, but he felt so bad that he wanted to put that back together. And he's a very skillful person. So he did a really good job with the duct tapes. So I couldn't tell that it was fixed. So I would just drive, your, drive it around, you know, for the next few days, and, you know, and then I had to go to the collision center and to, you know, get the est estimate and fix it. But I was really impressed. I was like, wow, this is like as if nothing happened. But of course, you know, if I kept doing that, you know, there will be damage to the car, right? So I didn't do that. But I share this because the Mosaic Covenant is like the duct tape, uh, you know, which could impressively make someone look good upon good performance. And it is true blessing for people to, you know, uh, perform well and get good result through hard work. That's a good thing. That's a blessing. But if the system of the law is now applied to the system of justification by promise and faith, that's the problem, right? It's as if you're trying to uh, put the problem back together through duct tape. Because there's a big problem that cannot be fixed by just cosmetic solution. You have to fix it from inside. The only way you can heal and fix up a soul is by uh, God's work of the Holy Spirit, uh, which can only happen through our faith in Jesus Christ. And that's the problem that these false teachers were uh, doing and teaching, that you are supposed to use this 
good way of blessing, hard work and good result, and apply that into spiritual blessings, gaining status with God. And at this point, I think the way we can apply this to our lives is that we may do this in our lives too. Again, big blessing when we uh, get the good results from what we do, from hard work. That's a good thing. Nothing's wrong with that. You know, good career, you know, financial stability, you know, physical fitness. Man, I got to work on that. You know, I haven't worked that in a while. But if you got good results, good for you. Um, and you get admiration from people for your hard work, good for you. It's great. But again, when these things that are good become a measure for your spiritual life and how you see yourself towards God and towards yourself, there comes a problem. It's duct tape trying to cover up your deeper problem. And I love this quote in the next slide by author and pastor Paul Tripp, who says, a desire for a good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes a ruling thing. And it's so good. A desire for a good thing, again, good accomplishments through your hard work, but it becomes a bad thing when it becomes a ruling thing. When the good things of the physical blessings become the ruling things that you rely on to fix your soul problem, then they become bad idols that we shall not go on to do. It's a misapplication of the law. Now, third and last, finally we arrive at the, the usefulness of the law. So the last question that Paul will address here is important and it's very logical. Meaning, so far, you know, he's been trying to argue that law is not to be applied in, in spiritual ways. Uh, so the question now then is, is the law bad? You know, does that mean that the law is evil? If it's not evil, what is the purpose? Why, why did God give the law to Israelites and even to us? So let's look at that. I think it's very important and applicable to our lives. Verse 19, the question, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Um, again, the, the, the law was added for that specific time period until uh, the offspring, uh, the Christ, came that the promised, you know, prophesied for. Uh, but, but the purpose, Paul says, of the law during that time period was this. The word is transgressions. Transgressions. The word transgressions is not just a synonym for sin, although there's overlap in meaning. Uh, but transgression uh, means a specific violation of what's written in the law. Let me repeat that. Transgression means a specific violation of what is written in the law. So now the mystery is getting solved here. Why is there a law? in the world. What this means is before the law came, before God gave the law, you know, people still sinned. We're, we're always sinners, even at, you know, uh, ever since 
time of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. They still sinned, but before the law came, uh, they didn't have a specific knowledge of uh, what their sins uh, were committing. They didn't have the category of right and wrong. So what that meant was uh, they felt wrong by their conscience, but they didn't know why that was wrong. And one consequence of that time period in history uh, would have been people not taking sin seriously, right? But then the law comes, and now the law defined for people what is right and wrong before God's eyes. And now, here's a big consequence. Because the law tells us what's right and wrong, and now there's condemnation all around. You see, uh, now people's eyes are open and see, oh my gosh, I'm offending God when I do this. Or when I do that, I offend, I offend God. Or when I do that, I'm sinning against God gravely. Oh my gosh, I'm damned. I, I'm, I, 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 even my breathing is sinning to God. My goodness. So now, people take sin very seriously to the point that it's supposed to lead them to be alerted about their final destination of their soul, and it's supposed to lead people to seek solution in God. And they were supposed to look forward to the Messiah that was to come and to die and provide salvation for them. That was the purpose of the law. In that sense, the law is like an x-ray and blood test, right? I mean, if you have, let's say, stomachache and migraine, you, know, you can assume that uh, there are various causes and, you know, once the symptoms cease, you may just move on with your life thinking, oh, that was not a big deal. But once you go through x-ray and blood test and they find out that you actually have a cancer in your colon, then it'll lead you to listen to what the doctor says and get a surgery and do something about it. Likewise, without the law, people didn't take sin seriously. But now with the law, people feel alerted and see that they need a solution. and They listen to what God has to say about how to be delivered from the condemnation, and that is Jesus Christ. So Paul concludes in this way, verse 23 to 25. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian or uh, supervisor, rather, I think it's a better translation, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under the supervisor. That was the function of the law before the Messiah came. Um, the law was supposed to show people that they really need a Messiah. But now that Christ has come and, and accomplished salvation, there is no longer need for that law because we look straight at Christ and see our salvation in him. And therefore, again, the Galatians and the false teachers are wrong, dead wrong about trying to put themselves back to the law system, denying the existence of Christ for our salvation. Christ is our salvation, 
and law leads us to him. And that's the right order. And if you think about it, uh, just thinking about the, the, the right purpose and the function of the law in the lives of people, I think it's very, very helpful. And I'll end with this. Um, I think there are two ways that uh, we can really apply this to our lives. First one is more societal level, and the, the second one is more personal level. But you know, more societal level, um, you know, when, when, when we look at the purpose of the law, my hope and prayer is that people in the world would look to the law of the, of the, of the Bible, of, the, of, the, of God's word. And here's what I mean. Uh, if you go to the next slide, uh, here's, a, here's a quote from a very pr prominent atheist, uh, Richard Dawkins. And here's what he says about human morality. He says, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. You know, I really, really respect Dawkins for his consistency because it's logical, meaning He's saying that if there's no God, then there is no moral objective standard. And therefore, people, each person has to come up with their own morality and system. And if somebody commits atrocity, who are you to judge? It's his own DNA that he danced to. You cannot judge him anymore at that point because Without God, every morality, moral system is subjective. If you think about it, to me, that's what's happening in, in today's America. That's what's uh, trending and, and the, the air that we breathe in. Uh, meaning the, the popular slogan, the popular moral standard sounds like this. You know, as long as you don't harm other people, that's fine. You do you, I do I. And, and guess what? The biggest, the best virtue in the world is kindness. Be kind. But if you're not kind, I'm going to cancel you. When I cancel you, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to be kind. It, there's a lot of irony there. And no wonder, but again, again the, the root cause of all of that is because there's no assumption that God is there. Every moral system has to be subjective to each person's conviction. And somehow, being kind became the highest virtue. But carrying out the kindness, there's meanness. And no wonder then, people are vicious towards one another. In this post-Christian world that a lot of scholars call where America is, 
this post-Christian world where there's no standard, people are supposed to be mean to one another because they have different moral systems. But if there is God as the moral perfection and standard, that this changes everything, doesn't it? All of a sudden, morality is not subjective. All of a sudden, we, we cannot, we don't compare and judge one another and each other's morality anymore. You realize that everyone has cosmic accountability for their morality. And he has written down his standard, his moral law in his word, and everyone will face his judgment in the end. If that's true, then it's a very different narrative in the world. And that is my prayer, therefore, as an application, that the world, people in this world, and even some of you joining us uh, in our service as unbelievers, that you would come to the realization that there is a God, that the morality is objective, and that the only way one can find shelter from the judgment to come that is righteous is through Christ alone and in his justification. That's my prayer. And secondly, uh, for believers now, uh, I think the law serves us as well. Uh, Again, the law is not a tool for justification. We we established that. But the law helps us identify our sins and and help us grow in holiness. Uh, This is, in fact, the so-called the third use of the law by John Calvin. In fact, uh, there's this renowned Methodist, in fact, the, 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 the founder of Methodist Church named John Wesley, you know, back in 1700s, uh, he would preach like this. He would uh, stand up on the pulpit and he would first recite the, the whole Ten Commandments. And then by the end, when he sensed that people are feeling miserable <laughs> because they realize they're not meeting any of them, that's when he would preach the gospel, that there is a Savior, that um, the gospel says that forgiveness is offered to them by faith alone. I think that's a beautiful picture of what law can do in our lives, meaning believers need to be near the word daily, that we breathe and listen to God's word And the word, like a mirror, like James 1 says, that it shows us what's wrong with our hearts. And it reveals us what we need to do to run to Christ. And as we find uh, shelter in Christ, that that justification that only comes from faith, in, in that security we repent and ask God to clear away anything that hinders us from growing and we become more like Christ. Brothers and sisters, let's do that this week, shall we? As we perhaps should too, you know, all year round, but especially this week, uh, may we stay close to God's law that reveals for us 
what he cares about, his standard and his grace that offers us the perfect salvation and security and peace. And that's all accomplished by the resurrection and death of Christ. Let's pray together. Spend some time together in prayer uh, before we um, respond with the song. Let's pray, um, asking God to search our hearts, um, I think to me, what's astounding and beautiful is that in God, even the laws that can sound quite um, pedantic, uh, wooden, can be beautiful. Because it shows the beauty of God, perfection in uh, rightness and morality, uh, in what is true, what is right, God has it all. And as we look at that, we adore God. My goodness, in this broken world, there's a God who uh, transcends all the, the messiness of this life. And as we pursue Him who is perfect, we also got to uh, you know, graciously be exposed of our imperfection. And God doesn't shame us, you know, leaving us in a dark corner without any hope. No. Uh, God, loud and clear, offered a perfect way where we can be reconciled with God, where we can become uh, holy like God. And that's the cross where the perfect justice and grace meet because the sinless Savior died. Therefore, justice is served. And at the same time, we find God's amazing grace and love towards us. There we meet God. There's, that's where our lives begin. So could we... Um, Dare to pursue God together in this place, asking God to um, help us to um, embrace His law and that we would respond uh, with embrace and uh, repentance uh, and that God would renew our hearts. Let's pray together.